You're talking about star power in the prime of their careers. A guy coming off a finals MVP championship, going to the Clippers. The same time bringing in Paul George, you know, re-signing Patrick Beverly, you know, bringing in shooters. I think this is a really good team. The NBA is implementing a challenge rule. I don't know how I feel about it. Obviously, the game continues to evolve. The game continues to get better, and you want to see that. But I think that it could be beneficial to the game, but it could also hurt the game because of the timing of it. The women's soccer team historically is better than the men's. It's been like that for years. They've been great. They've been able to win Gold Cups every year. There is a huge gap. They should be paid more. I agree with that. Bonuses alike. It should be more consistent. Welcome to the Mario Lemieux episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 66. My hiatus has ended. My vacation has come to an end. Unfortunately, I had to return back to the United States. I had a great time in Mexico with Bay, celebrating her birthday. Um, it was magnificent. While I was gone, a lot happened. Uh, Jordan was busy making highlight tapes um, in the Sky Gym or editing old clips of himself (laughs) in the sky gym slash working throughout the holiday. Jordan, how was your July 4th? I know we didn't really talk much, you know, after that. I know you were on the road and outside of what, Bristol, you know, kind of lonely. But you you look great on TV, by the way. You look great. You know, you look very poised. Um, How was your 4th of July heading into this week? CJ, thank you. That means a lot because you're a seasoned veteran on the uh, journalism front, so I really appreciate that. It means a lot. I was actually really lonely. I was in Bristol from the 3rd, 4th, and then I went back home on the 5th. But, uh, yeah, it was not definitely not the uh, typical July 4th because I was solo. However, it was a great experience. Got to do Golic and Wingo a couple days in a row and talk a lot of hoops, and it was really fun. Then once I got back, you know, got back in the groove with the kids. and um, But, yeah, it was it was fun, and... It wasn't quite as fun as Cabo. However, um, you, you, since you brought this up before we started taping, and now I, I must say that uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you thought of my combo guard skills. I mean, honestly, you were a lot better than what I envisioned. Not to toot your own horn, but I envisioned you know less athleticism in terms of the side-to-side movement. You look like you could get in and out of your, your ball handling a little better than I anticipated. The shot was how, how I expected it to be, textbook form. Um, Looks like you you grew up shooting jumpers outside or at a gym or rec center or 24-hour fitness, wherever, because of the, the way you hold the follow-through. You know, I was really impressed with the beef. The beef mechanics were there consistently every time. The the funniest part of the entire video, what we talked about offline, was the, the demonstrative actions of you, your floor general skills, how you just command the floor and wave people out of the way. Jordan-esque. I'm not talking about Schultz. I'm talking about Michael Jordan. The way you just move people like move i got this he can't guard me it was very very disrespectful you know, in, in the hoops world when a guy waves off a screen as he's as he's coming up court it's very disrespectful it means that he doesn't respect you as a defender it means that all he sees is the basket and he doesn't need an advantage because his advantage alone is himself so i thought that that was hilarious the way you moved and we talked about the cotton t-shirt well i gotta get you some leaning gear you're hooping in a cotton t-shirt sleeveless I'm like homemade joan like you cut the sleeves off yourself i said i said he had the dad bod rocking dad bod on full display but it's not a bad dad bod because there are at least and i talked about this on vacation you know what kind of dad bod am i going to have when i get Mm -hmm. older there's bad dad bods and there's good dad bods i think you're in between good what no dude i am fit what are you talking about you're like Yo, you're, you're fit. I think you're in between good and great dad bot. I wasn't going to say bad. I was going to say you're in between okay. a good dad bot and a great dad bot. Transitioning, depending on the holidays. Right now, you missed the holiday, so I think you're probably closer to great because that means you were eating better Correct. than I was uh, over the July 4th. I mean, drinking, you know, on the hour, chips and guac on the hour, flatbread pizzas, wine, tequila, tequila stand, tequila bar, ceviche and tequila, Hennessy. Henny coladas, you know, that stuff is just not good for you. And I feel like you missed that wave because you weren't home I for did. the holidays. And now you've, you're on the doorstep of greatness. <laughs> okay, so th- first of all, to have, to have you describe my game with such detail and praise, effusive praise, I, you, I can't even tell you what it means. Second of all, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. That was an overtime run, so I had to wear the overtime shirt. 
you know, the cotton shirt. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that, it's all it's all starting to make sense now because I was looking at the unathletic layup finishes from some of the guys when you threw the passes to them, and I was like, wow, they didn't even jump. No, nobody. That was not <laughs> like there were. I think there were two or three guys in that run that that were former pros, like um, in Europe. But for the most part, you know, it was a pretty. I'd say it was an above average run in terms of like what you'd expect in the city, but there you could see some of the players that were decent, you know. But but like the the waiting off thing wasn't okay. That uh, the fact that you I, here's how I know that you're a real hooper because everybody that comments on that video that I posted on Instagram and Twitter, they'll be like, "Oh, good shooting" or "good pocket pass," but nobody notices that one thing. But because you're CJ and you. You notice these things. You, you see me saying, "No, I don't." You know, don't don't come set or don't come, just get out of the way. That's the best part about this for me is you noticing that part of me, the confidence, the swagger, the ability to say, "I do not need an advantage. I am the advantage." That means a lot to me. Yeah, you were you were definitely feeling yourself. I don't know if that's your mentality every night when you're on the court, but that mentality during this actual run was that no one no one is messing with me. Like, I'm untouchable out here. And I was just so confused. So I seen the wave off. I seen the no-look balance passes. But I was confused as to why you were so open, you know, so often. I'm like, if, if you can shoot, like, you can tell by a guy's form if he can shoot, right? And then you're playing, he hits one, he hits two. You would think that you wouldn't be open after a while. And I was just so confused as to why, you know, you're getting trail threes. You, yeah. You're getting drive, kick, relocate threes. I was like, what, what, why is he open? Like, somebody's supposed to be guarding this guy. Someone put his, someone put him, put his ass on the deck. It's like what, you, what we've talked about. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. But the guys were just leaving me open for the right. trail threes. And I kept... I mean, okay, when you're cooking in an NBA game, if you guys are already going to be up on you, it's the NBA, especially because it's you. But if you hit a few, somebody's going to come really like, you know, like it's, they're going to make it uncomfortable for you, right? I mean, there's, no, there's not going to be any open, like clean looks like that. And for me, in a pickup run... At the to, very least, yes. To have those kind of clean looks, you know, I'm, uh, where I'm probably not going to miss, it was quite perplexing to me as well. Uh, I must say that I was confused and... Uh, I did hit I did hit some tough ones, but there were some a lot of open threes or like just super clean looks. Yeah, and sometimes those are the hardest shots to hit. But this is a perfect time for a transition. You know who else was confused? Who? The rest of the NBA when Paul George announced that he would be getting traded to the Clippers and joining Kawhi Leonard. I, I think that no one called this. I, I know I didn't call it. I know you didn't call it on the last podcast. I said he was probably staying. You don't. You don't. Fly all the way to all the way to your to your ex girlfriend to tell her you're leaving, um, and he did that. Okay, so what was your <laughs> flew, first reaction? He flew and how back did you... to Toronto to break up with his to break up with him. Right, exactly. So what was your reaction, CJ, to the Kawhi and then the PG news as well? And where were you when you found out? I was still in Cabo, so I went to sleep early. We were crashing pretty early every night because of the sun. You know, basically taking all our energy away and you know, watching the sunset and then going to bed shortly after that. So for me, I watched the fireworks at about 9.20, 9.30, and I was probably asleep by 9.45, 9.50. And I woke up at about 9 a.m. Uh, Cabo, uh, Cabo time, which is probably, I don't know, one hour off of West Coast, one hour off Pacific time. And I had like 30 messages and I was confused. I was like, oh, what happened? And my brother was like, first message I read basically like Kawhi, just basically hoodwinked the rest of the league and He's going to he's going to the Clippers with Paul George. And I was like, wait, what? He's going with Paul George. He was like, yeah. Thunder just traded an unbelievable amount of first first round picks. Um, Kawhi's gonna gonna end up going to the Clippers. And basically it was so crazy because they said that he was meeting with Paul George and, and kind of adjusting his meeting times with the Lakers. And basically he finagled the Lakers and the Raptors and kind of like held them at bay as he was trying to basically finesse this move with the Clippers. And I think that he didn't understand if it was going to go through or not. He knew there was a chance, but he just wanted to wait to the last minute um, before signing with either the Lakers or the Raptors. And luckily, they were able to pull something off for him to you know, complete this deal. But I wonder what would have happened if they weren't able to complete this deal, if he would have you know, ended up going back to Toronto or choosing to go team up with LeBron. So, yeah, if, if Kawhi felt like he was going to the Clippers by himself, Without getting another blue chip guy like PG, would he have just said, "Let me, let me just stay in Toronto. Maybe let me do a one and one, and then I could re-examine this next summer." I mean, that it feels like he wasn't going to go unless he was able to recruit someone else, and obviously he did a ton, ton of recruiting with Paul George. 
Yeah, I think that in the event that they weren't able to complete the the trade for Paul George, he ends up staying in Toronto. I don't think he I don't think he wanted to join LeBron in LA. I think that was last yeah. resort, uh, based on evidence on how he was trying to recruit Kyrie. He was trying to recruit KD. He was trying to get somebody to go to LA with him, but he didn't want to join the Lakers um, in LA. I think he was determined to either go to the Clippers or stay in Toronto. And it's interesting um, because. You know, a year, a year and a half, two years ago, he could have signed what for two hundred twenty-five million with the Spurs. He leaves and ends up going to Toronto, to where Toronto has a chance to offer him the most money. He he ends up basically turning down what a hundred four years, one hundred ninety-six, four years, one hundred ninety-six or one hundred ninety million yeah, from Toronto. Yeah, it was almost two hundred. Yeah, and he could have signed. He could have signed for one hundred forty-one million. With the Clippers, but he agrees to a three-year deal with an option in the third year for 103 million. So he's basically making 32, 34, and an option to make 36 million. But in reality, some people like hindsight is hindsight. You know, it looks like he's making a lot of money, which he is. But he left he left a lot of money on the table. You know, in in this move, forcing a trade out of San Antonio, and then signing a short shorter-term deal to basically coincide with Paul George for guaranteed two years in LA. He, he left a lot oh, over a hundred million on the table. Granted, he'll probably get it on the back end. It was, it's, it's a risky move uh, for a guy of his caliber. And also, couldn't he have just signed the, a two year deal and then re-examined it after 10 years of service to get that extra, extra cash. That's what surprised me a little bit. So instead of just what, what instead of what he did, which is the three years, 103 with a player option, on the fourth year. Yeah, I think he was very strategic about how he wanted to do this. Like you said before, he'll have the 10 years of service, but they'll also have his bird rights after two years, which means that he can get a full 35% of the cap. So he can get his 35% max. um, In four years though, right? After his third season. After three years. Yeah, I think he, yeah, I think it's, He'll opt out of his second year. He'll come back. He can sign a one plus one. Basically, he can sign a one-year deal, which is another. Once again, you're rolling the dice because these yeah. are elite players. But injuries happen. There's a lot of things that happen with this game that you can't control. Obviously, you never want to see something happen like the Kevin Durant situation. And obviously, there's two, three, four players in the league that can have an Achilles injury, not be able to play the next season, and sign a full guaranteed max deal. There's not a lot of players who can take that risk and actually see the benefit, you know, come through like that. So for him to sign two years, maybe signs, maybe he takes the option and signs the third year. And then after that, he'd be entitled to his full uh, 35% max. Oh, 35% raises yeah. instead of 5% But they have full bird rights on him now. Yeah. So, I mean. Right, but he has to be there for, for two or three years. Right, right. Do you, do you, do you think it's, the from a basketball standpoint, Kawhi and Paul George along with, Lou Williams, and obviously they, they retain Pat Beverly, and they have Harrell and Landry Shamit, who, we've, uh, who we both like a lot. Do you feel like this is the best basketball fit for him, even better than what Toronto and potentially L.A. would have been with LeBron and, and AD? I think this is a better team um, than Toronto, for sure. I think Toronto was a great team. You know, they had a lot of good pieces together, mm-hmm. but they're aging. Um, they got a lot of one-year contracts left, and it, it's obvious that that was a one-year thing. I think based on the discussions he had with the organization, the franchise, they were under the impression that he was probably leaving after one year, and he did just that. He brought him a championship, so no harm, no foul. Looking at the, the L.A. situation, he's from California. He went to college in California. It's, it's probably well known that he's probably wanted to play for a California right. team his entire life. I think from a competitive standpoint, he didn't want to join the Lakers because obviously you're playing alongside LeBron, you're playing alongside AD. I feel like he wanted to compete against them and bring right. another guy from from Southern, Northern, I don't know what part of, is PG from Southern Cal? Well, him and Northern? PG are both SoCal guys. Yeah, so in, in his mind, he was bringing another SoCal guy to LA and probably in his lifetime, he's never seen the Clippers with this much talent, you know, obviously Blake, Katie, or Blake, CP, and DeAndre, and JJ, they were very good, but you're talking about star power in the prime of their careers, a guy coming off a finals MVP championship, going to the Clippers, at the same time bringing in Paul George, you know, re-signing uh, Patrick Beverly, you know, bringing in shooters. I think this is a really good team, but I want to take a look at the Oklahoma City Thunder for yeah, a second here. What a what an interesting they landed dynamic a that is. Record a record of first round picks. They landed twenty twenty one and twenty twenty three, twenty two, twenty four, twenty three, and twenty five first round picks. Basically swapping them. They pick up Shay or Shy, and they get uh, Gallinari. Then they trade Jeremy uh, Grant. Grant. 
Yeah. Yeah, they basically loaded up on first round picks and assets and positioned themselves to to have a Atlanta Atlanta Hawks like draft in years to come and they have a chance to either move Russell Westbrook or keep him. If they move him, you know they're going to gain more assets and potentially another first round pick depending on where he goes. So, I think Oklahoma City made out based on the the situation of understanding Paul George didn't didn't want to be there any longer. So, th- this is th- there's so much here. First of all, I'm with you with the Clippers and the fact that I think this says a lot about where the NBA is at now that, um, again, we see a marquee franchise like the Lakers, you know, lose out on the blue chip free agent uh, of that was remaining in, in Kawhi Leonard. And you also have, obviously, with KD and Kyrie both saying no to the Knicks and going to the Nets. So now we have a, a situation where two, you know, 10 pole franchises lose out to essentially their little brother down the street, uh, or in this case, in Staples Center, uh, just down the, the locker room. So really interesting for the league, and I think it's really healthy that the league has this. We have some great duos, including, obviously, you and Dame. You mentioned Oklahoma City. The fact that they're willing to do this um, and that essentially pivoting on what just last year was, we're going to try to contend now with PG and Russ, is a really interesting Strategy, obviously, Paul George did not want to be there anymore. It looks like him and Russ, at least from a social media standpoint, still have a good relationship. But um, it's, if they were to trade Westbrook, uh, even without trading him, CJ, they're in a position now where they're going to be able to stockpile a ton of young talent. If they trade Russ, do, they'll do so even more. What do you think about Oklahoma City and the strategy that a year after it thought like they were really going all in, now they're, I don't want to say going all out, but they're trying to rebuild uh, pretty fast. Yeah, they're definitely heading down the road of rebuild for sure. They're, they're going to have to hit the reset button at some point, whether that's with Russell or without him. And it's clear that he understands, based on the trajectory of his career, him being 31, him you know, phasing towards 35, getting closer towards the, the latter part of his career, he wants to win now. and He doesn't want to be a part of a rebuild. So I think there's a high likelihood that he, he gets traded in the event that it's a deal that makes sense. You know, people have talked about Detroit. People have talked about Minnesota. People have talked about Miami. I think the numbers have to make sense. The Obviously, what they're able to get in the trade needs to make sense. But I think it just shows you that the parity in the league and how quick something turns around is, is unbelievable. You look at the Raptors getting swept in the first round consistently or losing to LeBron consistently, and they make a trade. They, they hit the reset button on a 57, almost 60-win team to trade you know, the face of the franchise for also another fire guy. fire their coach, coach of the year. Right. Fire the coach who was the coach of the year, make, make drastic changes in a year, win the championship, and then have to kind of flip the script a, a bit, looking at what they have to do now with Kawhi leaving. And I, I hear there's rumors that they had a chance to acquire Russell Westbrook and Paul George, but they would have had to include Pascal in the trade. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I've seen some rumors basically stating that Pascal was the, Siakam was the centerpiece in a trade that would have featured Russell Westbrook and Paul George coming to Toronto. I mean, and what is that? That says a lot about Masai and the fact that Toronto believes that much in Siakam. They, I mean, I don't. It's hard to know what, what what's really on the table. A lot of trades get discussed in this league that don't even get reported. And then to know for certain, uh, was that an uh, who who reported that? Do you remember? Was that an ESPN report? I think it was an ESPN report that it, at one point it was brought up. That doesn't mean that it was going to be agreed upon but I think it was something that was discussed I, I believe that when you're when you're in a position to trade a player of Paul George's caliber you're taking all offers yeah, listening of to all offers before right. making a decision right. yeah I would I would imagine that that was true I, I just don't it's it says a lot about Toronto and their patience and their belief in their their homegrown talent do you think that who, who would be the best fit for Russell um, the reason I mentioned Minnesota if they were to trade Teague and Wiggins, it would be really positive, I think, for Cat, and then he could team up with Russell and have a point guard that could really help him. I wonder if that's not the best fit, Minnesota. Yeah, I think Minnesota would be a, a pretty good fit for him. Uh, granted, the money would need to work out. Obviously, they probably have to get off Wiggins as well uh, and give him, you know, kind of a fresh start, uh, new scene. I think. Based on the trajectory of their careers, Cat being younger, a star player in his own right, playing a completely different position at the center power forward position. Pairing a guy like Russell who's transcendent, he's aggressive, he's a rebounding guard who can post up, gets to his mid-range, he has a little bit of um, leadership. He has, I mean, he has a leadership mentality and a, and a 
alpha male mentality. I think he would pair well uh, with Carl Anthony Towns. I think that the interesting comparison people make is, you know, to, to mindset of him and Jimmy Butler on how that would work in Miami. I think they're, they're both alpha males. And I think that alpha males genuinely get along with each other when there's a common goal in place. Yeah, I, you know, is there any, I guess like when you think about the league now and the fact that we've seen CJ, the players more and more being able to control their own destiny, it feels like, and we've talked about this, I, is there a better example of the, the players having all the power or most of the power than Kawhi doing essentially, like you said, hood, hoodwinking the entire league and allowing um, to take as much time as he needed and then the league to react to him as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I mean, he basically had a lot of teams in limbo. The Lakers weren't able to sign Jimmy Butler. They were basically kind of keeping their spot open. The Lakers were basically holding off on signing other players. Danny Green was waiting on Kawhi to make a decision before he made his own decision. Look at the Brooklyn Nets. They were basically you know, waiting on KD to make a decision, although he made it early. The big, the big jokers in this case, uh, the superstar, you know, caliber players, essentially decide where the rest of the league goes and, and who they go after and what they do. And I think Kawhi just he used his power. I think it's it's great when you use your power in this league. You work so hard to accomplish so many things and to kind of set a standard for where your value's at. And I think it's smart you take advantage of it. Granted, he notified the Raptors, he notified the other teams, you know, of his intent once he was ready to make a decision. I think teams do the same thing. You look at a situation right now with the Knicks and uh, Reggie Bullock. They said Reggie Bullock failed his physical. I think mm-hmm. he you know, gained 15, 20 pounds since the season's ended. And now they're trying to restructure the deal that they had already agreed upon. And then you look at the reverse situation of the Morris twin who had committed to the Spurs for two years verbally, but now is thinking about recon- reconsidering his deal with them and heading to New York for a one-year $15 million deal with the Knicks. And People will argue, like, you're not supposed to go against your word and and things of that nature. And they're right. You're not supposed to go against your word, but this is a business. And so pen hits paper, you know, you you have a right to do whatever you want, a a right to make whatever decision you feel is best for your your family, for yourself, and financially. Um, You have to capitalize on this small window of making a, a lot of money. And I think that Kawhi, although he's capitalized on his freedom of movement, I don't think he's necessarily capitalized on the amount of money, you know, he could particularly be making, you know, having left the Spurs and then having turned down more money to take a, a shorter term deal uh, for three years. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting the, uh, the, you mentioned Bullock, he had a plantar fasciitis issue last year. He played 63 games, was supposed to sign a two-year deal. Um, the, the NBA, like, if you let yourself, you mentioned being out of shape, it's amazing how, if you if you let yourself get out of shape and and you're in the process of trying to sign a free agency contract. If you go to a physical, like, don't you think a team's going to be a little concerned if you have an issue with an injury and you're out of shape? It's just, that, that one to me is, is hard to understand. I, I, I can't imagine that that happens very often, but it's a strange, strange move by, by Reggie to put himself in that position. Yeah, I think he just mismanaged his summer. You know, the summer can get away from you, man. You think about, you know, depending on what team you're on, your last game could be April 11th or 12th. For agency doesn't start until July. Uh, you think about an athlete, how much we work during the season, how strict our diets are, travel, everything is pretty much structured. Your season ends and your structure is taken away. Unless you're a very disciplined person, you're cheating your diet, you know, your chef might go on vacation, you might start taking vacations, you're eating you know, at, at different types of hours, you're not working out as much, you probably take you know, anywhere from eight to 12 weeks of no basketball. And if you're not lifting, you're not working out on the court, and you're eating terrible, you're not getting your sleep, I could see how a guy gains 15 pounds. You're talking about two and a half months of probably inactivity, and especially if he was injured. That means he's just rehabbing, which means you're going to gain weight naturally anyway because you're not running up and down the court. I could see how you gain 15 pounds in two and a half months. I've seen guys gain more than that in, in one month, honestly. And sometimes it's because they're just eating whatever they want, and they're not working out, and they're not exercising. Other times it's just guys' bodies can go. Like, you, your body can really go from elite shape to out of shape in a hurry once you take away that structure and that discipline. Yeah. Well, I've seen you, like, even when we have meals, if you're going to be bad, I've noticed that your portions aren't very large if you're going to be bad. Like, you, you know, like, everything's controlled. And, you know, you have a weight, right? Like, if you gain five or six pounds where you get to, what was it? I think you were saying, like, if you get around two 206, 207, something like that, where you feel like that's your, you can't go any higher. 
Right. You 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 all have a you you have to have a threshold of all right. This is the max weight I can get before I have to tighten everything back up. And for every player, it's different. Some players may have it. Some players don't. But for me, I, I put a set weight in my mind to where I understand you know how long it takes me to get back down to where I need to be to to be in elite shape, to be in game shape, as we like to say. And like you said, like I had Wendy's yesterday. I haven't had fast food in so long that I really wanted Wendy's. I was in the airport. I ordered two large fries. I had a frosty and all that stuff. But now I'm going to go on a juice cleanse. I'm going to go on a little cleanse here um, as I kind of turn things back around and start my two-a-days next week to where, you know, no dairy. I'm going to start cutting stuff out, you know, more more so just water, no pop, no alcohol, only wine, maybe right. once or twice a week. Just kind of like tapering, tapering things back into play to kind of get that mind ready, get your body ready because... When you gain a certain amount of weight, the stress on your knees is bad. The joints, everything is kind of thrown off, your hips. And you don't want to mess up that movement uh, in your body to where it's too hard to get back into game shape. And when you start playing, that's a higher risk of injury. That's when you see guys getting hamstring injuries. They get those you know, wear and tear type injuries because of the load management and the weight that they're gaining in the summertime. I always, like, I'm always interested asking players about, in different sports, football, basketball, especially about weight gain and weight loss. And the overarching themes are, there's two of them. One, the older you get, obviously the harder it is to manage. But more importantly, it's so much easier to gain weight and get out of shape than it is to get in shape and lose the weight. So if you have that threshold, like you're talking about, you know what it's going to take for you to get back to that point where you need to be, or at least around there so you can manage it. And if you don't have that threshold and you just keep going and saying, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it, you're never maybe you're never going to fix it or you're going to, it's going to take a lot longer. And then you become, you subject yourself to, to an injury. So I, I totally agree with you. I think that's like, it's not just sports. It's just, just common sense of having balance. And, and, and honestly, CJ, I have that issue as well. I mean, you talked about the dad bod, the good dad bod. If it's the holidays and there's wine and there's pizza and there's beer and there's ice cream, uh, I, I lose control. I, I must admit and that's normal, though. That, that's what happens to all of us. The only problem is that you can lose control and bounce back because your job doesn't require you exactly. to, to have a physical, to have to run up and down the court. If we lose control, as you've seen NFL players, you know, admit to pregnant eating with their wife, pregnant eating with their girlfriend. Right. That's a real that's thing. That's a problem because once training camp starts and, and, you, and you weigh in and your body fat is 7% higher than what it's supposed to be, now everybody's looking at you like, how did this happen? But in reality, this happens to everyone in America every summer. <laughs> and, and every holiday. Like, there's certain danger zones for, any, for all of our listeners out there that are, you know, trying to be in good shape or trying to be healthy. Don't, don't feel, if you, if you, don't get too down on yourself. I, I, this is, I'm, I need to take my own advice. But, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, holidays, you know, it's very, very natural. And unfortunately, fortunately for us, we don't have CJ. We don't have to worry about always being perfect like you do because this is your career. And that's why I, uh, I do appreciate the fact that you, that you care. However, I, I must admit, CJ, that for me, there's nothing better than a pint or two of ice cream as a, uh, and, and you've seen me eat ice cream, right? You, you've seen it. Yeah, you love you love ice cream, but I think everything in moderation is great. Like, I don't think it's possible right. to just be 100% perfect at anything. I think moderation is great for you. And having those cheap meals, you know, I love French fries. I love French fries with cheese. I like strawberry sorbet. I like those types of things, red velvet cheesecake. So being able to have that every now and then as a reward for my great diet, for my great work ethic is important. So when you do things the right way and you're, you're accomplishing and achieving your goals, reward yourself. You know, don't starve yourself from the things that your body craves or things that, you know, make you happy. I think it's important that, you know, you find that balance. And I think that uh, the Clippers have found their balance. They have. <laughs> Support for Pull Up with CJ McCollum comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your own story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X dot com slash pull up to get 10% off.
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Okay, back to the show. Did you see this? This is really interesting. Um, the NBA is implementing a challenge rule. You get one per game. You have to have a timeout. But it's not that dissimilar from what the NFL has done. I don't want to say with great success, but certainly with success, it's made the game better, I think. And the NBA is following suit. I think it speaks to Commissioner Silver's ability to adapt and evolve. This is not something that we've had before. Um, I was talking to to Adam last night a little bit about their success with it in the G League. They feel really good about it, and now the NBA is bringing it in. What do you think about this? It's interesting. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. You know, initially, a lot of people are are fans of it, but as a player, there's a certain element to the game that I think shouldn't be taken away. Obviously, you never want to lose games on a bad call or or have a call affect the outcome of a game down the stretch. But I think when you talk about history, history is important. This wasn't available to Bill Russell. This wasn't available to Jerry West. They didn't have, you know, these types of resources. Obviously, the game continues to evolve. The game continues to get better, and you want to see that. But I think that it could be beneficial to the game, but it could also hurt the game because the timing of it. You know, you're, you're in rhythm, you know, momentum swings, and next thing you know, the other team is challenging a play. And now you got to sit there and wait for them to review it. And it's cool for fans to watch and be like, oh, this is cool. Like, we're about to see it. You know, this could be a, a game-changing moment. But for us, our adrenaline's pumping. You might have the crowd on your side. And you got one timeout left. And you just basically throw the challenge for, like, just to kind of take the crowd out of the game or to kind of stiffen up the other team and kind of slow down their momentum. So I think that strategically it could be used in a variety of ways that could ultimately affect the game. But, you know, we've lost games to where – you know, two years ago against the Wizards, one of the Morris twins, pump faked in the corner. He he took he took a trigger step, but his back foot went backwards, stepped out of bounds. He hit a pull up shot. We couldn't review it because the play wasn't reviewable, right? But he stepped out of bounds. We end up losing. So this would eliminate that in theory if you had right. a challenge. In theory, if we had a challenge, we could have called a timeout and challenged that he stepped out of bounds. But based on the rule book, we couldn't we couldn't appeal. We couldn't challenge that part of the play. We could only challenge like how much time is left on the clock when the ball goes through the net or something crazy like that. So I mean, we've literally lost multiple games. Another game against the Sixers two or three years ago. The guy goes to save the ball out of bounds at the end of a game on an offensive rebound, and he steps out before he saves it. But we couldn't review it. It was the play. Yeah, was, I remember that play one. wasn't reviewable. Yeah, so was you're talking about multiple times in, in my yeah. career and in everyone's career to where maybe we're on the the positive side of something happening or the negative side of it, and it's just a part of the game. There's that natural human error that's going to be taken away now, you know, with the, the ability to be able to challenge um, calls, which is great because you want the game to be as clean and as as correctly officiated as possible. But I think that from a momentum standpoint, it can be it can be effective and detrimental detrimental at times to to the players because I know I get stiff quick, especially you know in those instances where you know we got to review a play and they're not sure what the, what what's going on back in uh, Secaucus and right. all that stuff. I guess my question then, CJ, would be what what has been the downside and positive, but what are the positive and negatives to the under two minute review? And does does that impact your flow and your disability to get back on the floor and feel feel good? No, I love the under two minute review because it tightens up the game. Mm-hmm. You know, the holes, the the block, the block charges a big call, the deflections when the ball goes out of bounds is is huge down the stretches of games. And if you look at that four overtime game against the, the Denver Nuggets where we were under two minutes, I'm picking up Murray full court. Instead of me fouling, I just try to turn him, turn him, turn him, and then I reach for the ball and try to get a steal. I get a deflection, the ball goes out of bounds. The refs originally ruled it Denver Nuggets ball. 
with it being under two minutes, I automatically tell them, you got to review it, you got to review it, you got to review it. So we review the call, they look at it, and it's funny, it's a sick part of the game, but whenever the, whenever the ball is hit out your hands, regardless of you know the direction it's hit, it's usually going to go off the, the person who's dribbling hands last because of the momentum of the ball and the angle of it. So they reviewed it, they overturned it and gave us the ball, and if it wasn't under two minutes, we wouldn't have been able to review that call. So that was an instance to where it played out in our favor. We ended up getting the ball, we score, we ended up forcing another overtime, and the rest is history in a four or five overtime uh, win in the playoffs, which was huge, and it was only capable and possible because of that two-minute situation. So I'm a fan of that, and I think that was a, a time where it played out in our favor, and there's been other times where under two minutes we've had a block that's turned into a charge right, <laughs> down the stretch, right. and it was the correct call. I just think that it's so important that that basketball is such a – not only is it such a subjective game, I think it's the most – Challenging game to referee along with the NFL. I mean, it's so hard. It's so fast. And there are so many things that can and can't be called depending on your angle or your point of view, et cetera. But it's so important that with basketball, more so than any other sport, that the flow is not interrupted. And that's the issue potentially with the the challenge rule. And But it, it, it seems like it's been really well received in the G League. Um, I hope it goes well because I if it works well, then you're talking about the game being cleaner and, and, and more accurate. But you're right. There, there, there's a very fine balance between getting it right and then interrupting the, the flow of the game and, and the players. Because you don't want to make the product worse by having – forget injuries for a second. Just general – like if, if you stiffen up over a couple minutes in the, at the end of a game, that can, inf- that can significantly impact the quality of the result. So that, that would be my concern. Um, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't – you don't want to change that. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think that that's something that we'll find out as it continues to progress. Obviously, you know, when when change comes, you know, a lot of times people don't like change. They want to keep the game the same. You know, they're happy and, and comfortable with the way it is. And you have to be able to adapt to change. And I think at first there may be some problems with it. But I think, you know, overall, if it's going to improve the, the game of basketball and how how it's officiated, I think everybody will eventually get on board. But at, at first, it'll probably be difficult to to adjust to it, just like we had to adjust the two-minute rule, just like we had to adjust to right. implementing a three-point line. There was a lot of stuff that's changed with the game that we now grow to love. Yeah. Um, speaking of changing the game, the U.S. women's national team, congratulations. Did, were you able to see any of it, see, especially the final against the Dutch? I did. You know, shout out, shout out to the women's uh, national team. I, I was able to catch, you know, some of the, the final game out out in Cabo. It was a great finale. I think that's arguably probably the best, you know, run of a women's mm-hmm. soccer team that we've ever seen with, with that group of group of women, you know, being coached by the legendary coach herself. I think she's done a tremendous job of continuing to develop that talent. And, you know, on the, on the flip side, the men end up losing to Mexico. I know. Based on, you know, with me, me being in Mexico during the actual game, it was funny to kind of see you know how how it was perceived from there and versus how it was perceived um, in the United States. What 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 was that like? Because that was I mean they, this is their ninth Gold Cup. I think Mexico, the U.S. last won it in '07. It's not Copa America. It's not the World Cup, but the Gold Cup's a big deal. So what was the reaction in Mexico? I mean everybody was hype. You could just yeah. see it. Every every channel I turned to, you know, there was media in different parts of of Mexico. You know, kind of celebrating with fans at bars, restaurants, and the streets. It was flooded. The players, you could just see how excited and happy they were to be able to represent their country. And on the flip side, you know, watching some of the uh, American channels in Mexico, it was more so disappointment on how you know the, the men's team wasn't able to kind of get over the hump. They had you know three or four chances to to capitalize. You know, shots on goal that just didn't fall and what was interesting with the announcers and how they were kind of describing the, the situation around the American team was that they haven't been able to develop talent, you know, consistently the same way that the women's teams have been able no. to kind of develop and sustain talent. Being able to get the best players, you know, in the U.S. to play is another problem that they've had. And then looking at Mexico, Mexico was playing their second and third tier players from Mexico. They didn't even send them send out their A-team, you know, so to be able to win with, you know, second tier, third tier players, you know, similar to how, you know, the United States has historically done USA basketball, you know, not sending out necessarily the the all-star caliber players all the time for World Cup games and being able to still, you know, go undefeated. That's kind of what Mexico did in the United States as if to say that, look, we're good enough to win, you know, without sending everybody. And, and some of the players obviously are under pro contracts and, and are right, able to right. You know, kind of get out get out of that right now, but that just kind of shows you the gap 
and this is a great way to segue into the gender gap, but it shows you the gap between football, a.k.a. soccer in the States, versus football, a.k.a. soccer in Europe, Mexico, South America, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. You know, the, uh, I'm so happy that the women won, and they go back-to-back, which is only the second time it's happened in, in female history. Germany was the other one. I, I, at the same time, um, it brings about a much bigger issue, which is equal pay. We've obviously seen... Well, we've seen the United States women really be at the forefront of this. Um, just a little background. They filed a lawsuit, uh, a class action lawsuit against the USSF in March, alleging being paid less and provided with less support than, than the men's team. Um, and, you know, just for what it's worth, like the fact that our women have been this dominant, it brings a lot more light to the issue. If they weren't as good, I don't know if people would – either care as much or know about it as much, but because they've been so dominant and they're still not getting anywhere near what the men are getting, for me, it's really hard to understand and it's really upsetting. And um, I know that they don't generate the same amount of money as the men, but CJ, it's not fair that the women are not receiving what they deserve. Yeah, I agree. I agree with the, the general statement and not just the gender gap difference between sports, but also in the working world, a woman can perform the same duties as a man right. in a nine to five and not be compensated fairly, not be treated fairly in the workplace. There's a lot of issues with that. And, you know, as a man, we all come from a woman. I think we have to understand the importance of a woman in society, the importance of a woman in the workplace and how to properly treat them, how to properly respect them and how to properly empower them so that they're compensated fairly. But looking at the sports side of things, I had to really research this because I think a lot of times we all just jump on waves and say like gender mm-hmm. gap, gender gap, like there's, this is not happening, that's not happening. I think based on a treatment standpoint, you know, what I've heard historically from soccer players, not only in college, but that play professionally is the, the environment that they're, they're in, obviously the turf, that being a big situation on the type of turf they're playing on that's leading to, you know, massive scars, the, the pay, the the locker rooms, the travel, looking at the WNBA, how they're traveling, having layovers for days. Like, there's a lot of things that are wrong with... Yeah, I with, posted on this recently. You saw that. Right. Yeah. Like, you've yeah. seen it. There's a lot of things that are wrong with the day-to-day treatment, the coverage of it, what channels it's coming on, what times it's coming on, the years that it's... the the timing of actual WNBA is during the summertime. So, like, there's a lot of things that are happening with sports and the gender paying gap. But what I come to find is... The only issue I have with with the gender gap between, obviously, the World Cup and comparing the men's team to the women's team, it's obvious the women's team is more dominant in their respective sport. Like, the women's soccer team historically is better than the men's. It's been like that for years. They've been great. They've been able to win Gold Cups every year. I think the, the interesting part that I found, you know, at researching the situation is that the men's World Cup generated $6 billion, um, and gave out about 7% to the teams. In 2019, the Women's World Cup made 131 million and gave out more than 20% to the team. So I think that there's a big, there is a huge gap. They should be paid more. I agree with that. Bonuses alike, it should be more consistent. But the problem is that men's soccer generates so much money, yeah. generates so yeah. much revenue yeah. that it's hard for them to keep it to keep it close. Because You're if right. you think about it, they're making they're generating six billion, only paying out seven percent. The Women's World Cup is only generating one hundred thirty one million, and they're paying out twenty percent. So right. it's not generating as much money. So therefore, it's harder for them to pay it out. And it's it is crazy because obviously everyone's it should be closer, it should be more equal. But I think one of the things we can do as society is support women's sports more, like go to games. Buy jerseys. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. If it's yeah. on TV, watch it. Those are ways that we can help raise the revenue so then that they can get a, a, a larger share of the pie because they are getting a big share of the pie. The problem is that it's not a big it's not a big pie to begin with. And I think that's a problem in itself right there because we all want to support women's sports. We all want to empower women in general, but I think it's a it's a lot of talk. Like if you want to empower women, go to women's go to women's sports events. Take your kids right. to women's sports events, right. and that's a way for them to generate more money. So, CJ, we also have the, the issue of bonuses, which is significantly less in the Women's World Cup as it is for the men in terms of the U.S., but also taking it a step further, the club team. So, obviously, we watch club soccer a lot in the U.S., for example, the Premier League, which has you know billion-dollar franchises, including Manchester United, which is arguably the most expensive and valuable franchise in the world. So, you, you're talking about payment structure being significantly flawed, obviously on the club side of things and also on the 
World Cup side of things. And as a whole, it's just not good enough for our women. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I don't have a daughter yet. One day I'll probably have one. But I have cousins. I have a fiance. I have friends that are women. And I understand, you know, from afar. I don't understand physically what it's like because I'm not living the life. But I've seen I've seen what it's like you know, to watch my mom work the same job as a man and make less. Like, I've seen friends go through that. I've seen in the workplace daily on, you know, playing in the NBA, you know, having friends in the WNBA, having friends that play overseas. Obviously, the compensation is different, you know, in Europe and in China for women and men than it is for women and men in the NBA versus the WNBA. But there's a big difference in how they're treated in Europe, how they're paid in Europe. They make more money in Europe than they do in the States. They make more in China than they do in the States. They're treated like queens over there, and then they come back to the States and have to play in the WNBA and fly commercial with mad layovers, play back-to-backs where they're taking seven, eight-hour bus rides. It's crazy, and it's unfair, but the only way for us to fix this is to figure out how to help their sports generate more money. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, where are they going to get the money from? Like, where does the money come from if, if the uh, exactly, isn't there? Exactly, yeah. yeah also, like, with... The, with the men's World Cup and the women's World Cup, again, going back to the size of the pie, they just get so many they, – they, their bonuses are so much larger um, than the women. It, you, you, we always expect, like, I don't know, it just seems like this generation of women has been so – between Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan and, and Kristen Press and these amazing women, it just feels like they have taken it upon themselves to be trailblazers and – for the next generation. But at the same time, like, I, I don't know, I felt like at the early 90s or late 90s, early 2000s, it, I thought this was going to change things, or a lot of people did at least, and then it didn't really change. And then we had a World Cup win, didn't change. Four years later, we win again. I, I just, at some point, you wonder if it's ever going to really get a lot better. Right. I mean, we can all talk about it and, and harp on it, but I think it starts with us as a whole, continuing to support it. And you talked about the bonuses. I just found this on the Huffington Post, um, talking about bonuses. It says that female soccer players earn a much smaller bonus in the World Cup. They, they earn 15000 um, the, the male players re- receive 55000 And the crazy part in the comparison is that the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation awarded the men's team a $5.4 million bonus after losing in the round of 16 in the 2014 World Cup. It awarded the women's team $1.7 million, and it won the entire tournament in 2015. So that's mm. kind of telling you the difference between the success levels, you know, the women's team obviously being more successful historically in the past and still being compensated less from a bonus standpoint and from an overall pay structure standpoint. And you have a men's team who struggles and still receives a larger bonus more so because of the, the revenue shares and the split, but it's still unfair. Still not fair for the women's team to be successful and only get $1.7 million, whereas the men's team fails to advance out of the round of 16 and gets $5.4 million bonus. That's, that's crazy. CJ, also, like, the, our women, these women have been champions for equal pay, um, you know, equal rights. The fact that, like, Megan Rapinoe has come out and been a trailblazer for LGBTQ, uh, that again, you're talking about athletes that are going above and beyond what they're supposed to do as athletes, right? Just worry about what's on the field. But these women are trying to create equal pay, equal rights. And for me, like, it's extremely inspiring. And I, you go on social media and you see all this negative energy directed toward these women. And it's, it's so sad to me. Um, and I know it's social media, but it really, it does, like, it hurts me when I see that, you know, CJ? Like, it just, it really upsets me. I mean, people can be cruel. You talk about some of the best athletes in the world, you know, receiving criticism, a woman being told to stay in the kitchen. And you see, you know, some WNBA players walking into the arena with the shirts that say, this is, this is where I belong. And it's a picture of the basketball court. This is, right. this is basically like, this is my kitchen. Basically like, you know, trying to, you know, play with the situation a little bit. But you have to understand that everybody has a career. Everybody works hard you know, to have what they have and to attain what they have attained so far. So to try to put stereotypes and boxes on people is is a sad part of you know, our reality here in, in this world and more specifically in America. More show in a minute. But first, support for Pull Up with C.J. McCollum comes from Third Love. And I know the wifey will like this one. Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who have taken their fit 
Finder quiz designed bras for a perfect fit and premium feel. Third Love has a 100% fit guarantee. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. Fit stylists are everywhere and available every day to help via text, chat, or phone. And returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash pull up now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash pull up for 15% off today. Well, I would like to transition to grape juice. Uh, you, were in, you were in Mexico. Did you have some great wine or were you focused more on like the tequila side of things? I did actually. Cue the wine music, please. <laughs> I have to I have to check this what out. Did you have? I gotta go back to the app that I won't mention. I have to go to the app that I won't mention. But I did have some great wine um, while I was in Mexico, and I want to introduce you first to the Italian wine that I had um, wow. while I was there. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but it was very good. We actually had it on Elisa's birthday. It's among the top 25 Italian Barbera wines in the United States and among the top 2% of wines in the world. I've been airing more on the side of acidic, so basically my mouth's been watering like crazy when I've been drinking it. Um, more smooth than tannic, more bold than light. And it's called the Cadi Pian Barbera DSD. It was 2014 red wine and the price point is very good for those who are you know trying to stay under 25 dollars you can actually purchase this for 13 bucks you know, wow on certain apps online and it's it was solid it was very solid it got the job done buzz was where it needed to be and i was able to watch the sunset uh you know on the beautiful mexican beach that sounds awesome. great i would um, definitely recommend this wow I'll, I'll, I'll try to get you a case of this sent to new york for sure well, yeah, so thank you and, I, and the price point is that's tremendous. Um, so I actually tried a new, I didn't even really know that Germany made Pinots, but um, this Pinot from Germany, 2015, Kohler Ruprecht. I don't know how to what that means, but it's K-O-E-H-L-E-R, Kohler. It was great Pinot, uh, very reasonably priced. I actually had it at a restaurant. It was $16 for a glass. So I imagine that could be right around 50 for a bottle. And uh, it was terrific. And CJ, again, like, you know, I'm a Pinot guy, but I am, like, I just love discovering, like, I didn't even really know that Germany made Pinot. So I love discovering this. This is what's so cool about wine. You realize how little you know as you get to know more. That's awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad you really enjoyed it. The price point of around 50 bucks is great. Our listeners will be happy to hear that. You know, once again, we're trying to, you know, put wines out there that, are in different price points, not just the crazy expensive stuff, but some stuff that you can just, you know, have on tap for friends, family, loved ones, special occasions, whatever the case may be. <laughs> it's true. I mean, everybody's, you're absolutely right. Was the, uh, so was vacation awesome though? I mean, it looked like, it looked, it looked beautiful. You were gone about a week, eight, nine days. Yeah. Vacation was great, man. It was really relaxing. It was peaceful. I got some color back. I'm definitely brown skin right now. I went from Carmelo bar to more of a Hershey. <laughs> I might be approaching snicker territory at this point. Wow. Um, I'm like a ghost. I'm so pale. I got to get some sun. This is my mission. Sun and wine. Those are my two big things. And thank you for the incredibly kind words about my game. It means a lot, man. I, I really appreciate it. No problem, man. I'm a realist, so if you look trash, I would have told you you look trash. <laughs> yeah, you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, backslash pull up with CJ, or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to pull up. up.